Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 155. In this episode, we're talking about blindness in the Hebrew Bible with Dr. Eric Harvey. Dr. Harvey holds a PhD from Brandeis University in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies with a specialization in Bible and the ancient Near East. And he recently held a Digital Humanities Postdoctoral Fellowship at the Center for Spatial and Textual Analysis at Stanford University. And he also blogs at blindscholar.com. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Madison Pierce and myself, Stephanie Kate Judd. So in this episode, which is the second in our series on disability, I was really grateful for the way in which Dr. Harvey sketched out so much terrain for us in terms of the intersection of disability studies and how that interacts with biblical studies and his area of expertise, which is understanding um, the way in which disability is understood in both the ancient Near East and the Hebrew Bible particularly. But one of the bits that I most appreciated from what Dr. Harvey shared with us is his personal experience about what it is to live faithfully in the circumstances and the body that you have. And in particular, his landing point on the way in which often disability is conceived of, particularly acquired disability, is conceived of as a tragedy um, that's connoted with cut-off potential and the way in which he really beautifully reframed that for us. What about you, Madison? I really enjoyed hearing Eric's reflections on his experiences, but I mean, one of the things that was really influential for me was hearing him talk about second Isaiah or, you know, um, various texts in Isaiah um, and talking about the links between um, various uh, disabilities and captivity. And it's definitely something that I want to re-listen to and to learn a little bit more from because it was such a stimulating uh, aspect of our conversation. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Eric Harvey. Dr. Harvey, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're really excited about unpacking your work on blindness in the Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East. But before we get into that, we'd love to hear about your experience and the work that you are currently doing. Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, So I am Eric Harvey. I earned my PhD in 2020 from Brandeis University in Bible and the Ancient Near East. So that is the Hebrew Bible in the context uh, in which the, the various texts that make it up were written. Um, so ancient Israel and its neighbors uh, in Mesopotamia and in the, the, the west coast of the Mediterranean, you know, uh, Israel, Syria, Palestine area. Um, my, my doctoral work was actually on the Psalms and didn't have anything to do with disability. Uh, and I did not originally intend to write about disability, but uh, during the course of my PhD, uh, my vision started to deteriorate. It had never been great, uh, but it started to deteriorate. And midway through my PhD, slightly after finishing my comprehensive exams, uh, I became legally blind. At the same time, uh, I was, you know, sort of reading very widely in disability criticism uh, and in all, you know, disability memoir to wrap my head around just the transition in my own life. Um, And I was doing research on the Psalms and started doing some research on Psalm 115 and 135 and the parallel text there, which includes in part the line, the famous line, they have eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear. And as I worked through all of the various connections of this text with different texts in the Hebrew Bible, uh, I realized that I had a big contribution to make to the study and interpretation of blindness in particular in the Hebrew Bible, 
and throughout the ancient Near East, just reading through the secondary literature and realizing um, how significant the gaps were that are that I perceived there. So that led me to uh, my second project. I'm still in the process of publishing my dissertation as a book, but I'm also on the side beginning my second project, which I call Blindness Lived and Imagined in the Ancient Middle East, which attempts to be a holistic reappraisal and reassessment of blindness in the ancient Middle East, both as a lived disability and as a construct in what I call the cited imaginary. That is sort of the, the collection of stereotypes, tropes, expectations, and associations that cluster around the concept of blindness in the, the minds and writings of overwhelmingly cited storytellers and writers. That's a longish summary of what I've been up to. Um, that sounds incredible, Eric. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of what you found in those discussions of the, you know, seeing you do not, or sorry, having eyes you do not see and all of that. Um, I, I mean, if, if you're willing to share some of that kind of cutting edge research that you're doing, but all of this sounds so fascinating. Sure, absolutely. My, my dissertation was on the material aspects of text transmission. So I was um, studying a lot of manuscripts, but then as I went back in time, trying to disentangle the connections between different biblical texts, um, sort of this task that's been variously called interbiblical exegesis or intertextuality um, or the study of illusion and citation, et cetera. And you, th this phrase, uh, they have eyes, but they do not see, they have ears, but they do not hear, does not just occur in the Psalms. It also occurs, well, it occurs twice in the Psalms, but it also occurs in uh, once each in each of the uh, major prophets. So in Jeremiah 25, 21, uh, Ezekiel 12, 2, and Jeremiah, sorry, not Jeremiah, Isaiah 43, 8. And as I read through this, one thing I noticed that hadn't really been pulled out was that there was um, the line, even though it stayed remarkably similar, um, with the exception of Isaiah 43, 8, which I'll get to, did not was not always talking about the same thing. In fact, it, it, between the five attestations, there were three vastly different sort of conceptual domains being um, discussed with this line. Um, in the pre-exilic prophets, Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah, we had, it was, it was in this excoriation of Judah for being, um, for not heeding the commandments, um, of, of Adonai. And in the Psalms, it was about idols, basically literally having eyes and ears, but not being able to sense or perceive in any way. And then in Isaiah, uh, you actually have um, the words blind and deaf appear, right? Bring out this people who are blind, they have eyes, deaf, so they have ears. And so, um, this was this was doing its own thing that, that I'll get to, but uh, oftentimes these all five of these texts were discussed as if they all concerned disability. And I, as I read them, thought, you know, only one of these, the one in Isaiah, really discusses disability. The other ones, um, they discuss different kinds of not seeing. So in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, for example, we have uh, the, these, you know, accusations that they're not seeing or hearing, um, but these are moral accusations. And really the only re way that the people could be held morally accountable for not seeing or not hearing something is if they had the capability to hear and see, and yet we're not doing so. And in Ezekiel, this is extremely explicit because it says in Ezekiel 12, 2, they have eyes to see, but they do not see. They have ears to hear, but they do not hear, right? This isn't the case of a disability. This is the case of um, the people not using faculties, which they are perfectly capable of using should they so choose. On the other hand, you have the Psalms talking about idols, you know, the, 
the, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. And here, you know, the, the issue is not disability because the, the, the statuary, the divine statuary um, of Mesopotamia, which, which is what this, these are aimed at, um, were formed, you know, basically to be physically perfect. And yet the criticism here is that they are lifeless and completely powerless. So here, once again, we don't have the concept of disability brought to the fore. Um, finally, in Isaiah, we do have disability. And yet the way that it's being discussed in Isaiah uh, is very different from the way that many scholars and interpreters assume it was discussed. Um, and here we have, I think, prevailing modern metaphors of blindness being read back into the Bible in a way that is um, anachronistic and inappropriate. So, you know, we often, or perhaps the primary metaphorical entailment of blindness in, in the modern world and in modern English especially, is with ignorance. And in the religious domain, we often associate it with moral or spiritual ignorance or obtuseness or obduracy, right? Uh, that's not exactly what's going on in Second Isaiah. In Second Isaiah, blindness is not being used as a metaphor for ignorance, but for uh, captivity, for immobility, and for a lack of agency. And this shows up throughout Second Isaiah. Um, and I should clarify that I'm, I'm talking here about all, all the texts on blindness that I'm discussing here are from uh, either either the post-exilic stratum or one of the post-exilic strata, depending on what you uh, how you feel about the the composition history of Isaiah. But but those are post-exilic texts and are coming from a different place than the, the pre-exilic um, uh, temporal orientation of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Eric, could I just ask mm -hmm. a little bit about that idea of the way in which um, metaphorical kind of usages of blindness in Second Isaiah is being used differently? Um, so mm -hmm. I'm, you mentioned before Isaiah 43, 8. Uh, so for reference, that's the passage that in one translation says, lead out those who have eyes mm -hmm. but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. Could you flesh out a little bit what are some of the handholds in in this kind of section of of Isaiah, which give you this indication that that this is being used in a different way about captivity, about um, immobility, and that and that kind of that those are the connotations that are being imported rather than our our kind of um, interpretation that's dominant around ignorance today? Could you hash that out a little bit, please? Yeah, and I'll say in general, this is. The, the primary primary metaphorical association of blindness in the Hebrew Bible as a whole. Um, but in second Isaiah, it's it's particularly strong in um, Isaiah chapter 42. So just one chapter before this verse um, that parallels the Psalms. And in, in Isaiah chapter 42, you have the very famous verse, Isaiah 42, seven, where it is talking about the servant of Adonai uh, and his mandate to open the eyes of the blind, to release the prisoner, and you know, to release from captivity those who dwell in darkness, right? And in this poetic uh, triplet or tricolon here, um, we have a real conflation of the conceptual domains of blindness and captivity. So you have, you know, the first line to open the eyes of the blind, the second line to set free the prisoner or the captive, and then the third line sort of combines it in a sense, you know, to to release those who who's, uh, sit or dwell in darkness, right? Where you have um, darkness in itself, which, which is often combined with blindness in poetic texts, um, being conflated into the same sort of situation of immobility and, and captivity. Uh, it's, it's also evident in this long, um, passage in Isaiah 42, uh, 18 to 25, where, you know, it's uh, looky, blind, listen, you deaf. Um, and then, and then it, it talks about, it gives sort of this historical, poetic historical praise of the 
um, plight of the people who have been taken into exile in Babylonia. And it talks about them as blind and deaf uh, and talks about them as people who live in pits, right? Um, one verse before that long section starts in Isaiah 42, 17, you have this statement that, that you know, um, the Lord is going to lead the blind back from exile, back to the homeland. Um, and so it's this, it's this strong sort of text of concern and care for the blind. Um, and right after that it says, you know, he'll lead the blind back by a path they don't know. And those who trust in idols will, will uh, be turned back in shame or something. I'm butchering that um, through paraphrase, but um, it, it's here contrasting the blind uh, who are a, a group characterized by their, um, uh, their their sort of need for leading, but also their uh, them, them as the object of care and concern rather than condemnation compared to you know those who trust in in idols um and so you can see that the blind here are being contrasted to those who are being condemned so in in isaiah chapter 42 especially really lays the groundwork here for blindness not as a moral condemnation but as sort of a symbol of lack of agency and of immobility which you know in my assessment um still has issues in its characterization of disability, um, but does pretty clearly disentangle it from the conceptual domain of um, moral failure or, or stubbornness or obduracy. Yeah, as you were speaking and, and hashing out that, that, that significant difference in, in, in how we're to interpret um, the images that are being kind of um, laid out in these texts, the moral component completely shifts, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you to hear you talk about that. Thank you. Yeah, and this is something you see also in Jeremiah and Jeremiah thirty-one eight, where um, you know the the Lord is is leading people back from exile, including uh, various groups of of vulnerable people, the blind and the lame, uh, and and pregnant women and young children. Um, so you have them being sort of uh, objects of special concern in, in the return from exile. Yeah. Eric, you mentioned that there's some aspects of, of that framing um, that you feel uncomfortable with or can't totally accept. Are you able to unpack that a bit? Sure. I mean, I, I think that the, the problems arise in the imagination or characterization of, of disabled agency um mm. and and the ability of disabled people to shape their own lives and futures um so you know th there's a, an additional problem even after we disentangle or if we disentangle disability from from immorality or moral failure that we have um the portrayal of disabilities of, of disabilities primarily as props that is they they aren't there um pr primarily in relationship to, to real disabled people uh but they're put in the text to highlight some characters characterization characteristic of the main actors right yeah that you have and and here you get you know not only these leading the blind uh, although this is everywhere to show the virtue of another actor right job says i was eyes to the blind um you know the the, the god of israel leads people back leads blind people back to israel but then, yeah okay so there's also you know texts um in the psalms where it says you know um god gives sight to the blind right and and here that is is main none of these are really interested in the lives or experience or opportunities or possibilities for real disabled people what what they're put in there to do is to underscore the the power and the benevolence of some other actor right and so you get uh the treatment of disabled people and, and blind people specifically here 
as primarily as props and as metaphors. So that that I think is is still the problem, even when you put the characterization of blindness in in into that frame of concern and care, it's still um, objectifying and um, you know it, it it doesn't give agency in the way that uh, I, I think that we especially in the disability rights and disability justice movements are uh, focusing on emphasizing nowadays. Mm, they're, they're like passive recipients of the act, actions of others. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. This has been really helpful. And I, I'm, it's certainly helping me to understand these passages a lot better. And I, I work on New Testament. And so mm-hmm. generally I'm thinking about the ways that some of these Isaiah texts are picked up, especially in the Gospels and mm-hmm. how they characterize the ministry of Jesus and, and things like that. I, w- I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, these promises for healing and how they play a role. And I, I think this could actually help us to get towards some of your um, kind of foundational understandings of disability studies as well, because I recognize that healing in particular can be a somewhat contentious issue among people who who work on these areas and mm-hmm. that there's not one particular view but but i'd love to hear your perspective a bit more about this if you'd be willing sure absolutely i I think all disability studies uh as a broad umbrella category of of a bunch of different disciplines um in academic study revolve around uh a set of empirical material phenomena and that is the near infinite variability of human bodies, right? Human bodies are different shapes, different colors, different sizes. They, they look different, they function different. Um, and so there's, there's a, a, a problem, not in the sense of uh, something wrong, but it, you know, cultures have to uh, determine the way that they are going to um, represent and deal with this physical diversity right and so uh different different cultures different societies do this differently um and so i i think about my work as sort of intersecting disability history and uh critical disability studies that is the study of disability in literature um and these Disciplines. The task of these disciplines is to examine and and understand the different ways that uh, cultures and um, authors throughout time have represented uh, what what the disability theorist Rosemary Garland Thompson calls the raw materials of human physical variation, um, and uses them to create these dichotomous binaries of normalcy and deviance. For, for Rosemary Garland Thompson and for a lot of other disability um, critical scholars, that you know, disability is really uh, talking about dis- disability is a discourse of corporeal deviance. Um, that is the 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 process by which some physical variations are treated as normal and others are treated as deviant, um, and the the various consequences and entailments um, that structure social institutions and relationships based on those attributions. And that, that, that is somewhat different from disability studies as it exists as, as, a, um, as, a, as a discipline in other areas where the task is not describing or understanding or interpreting the treatment of disability, but is really ameliorative and that is coming up with better ways to think about disability and to represent the variability of human bodies in in our discourse and our uh, social and institutional relationships. So um, oftentimes when you get a history of the field of disability studies, it'll sort of start with um, activists in the 60s um, in the Berkeley Disability Rights Movement, and then in in the uh, in the UK, leading up to Mike Oliver suggesting the distinction between the medical and the social models of disability, right? And uh, 
Mike, Mike Oliver is the first one to articulate this in print, although it had been sort of talked about in earlier uh, activist circles. But basically, uh, he invents the medical model by rejecting it. And it, it's a description of sort of what he sees as the uh, general underlying view of disability in society that views it primarily through its medical aspect. Um, that, that disability is sort of a self-evident physical condition and a, and a tragedy. And the, um, the solution to the problems created by disability lie in, in the medical um, domain, that is in curing it and in uh, working medically or otherwise to help the, a, a disabled person or a person, you know, curative a disability fit into the structures of society as they are. Um, and Oliver suggests the, the, the opposite side of this is the social model of disability, where he says, you know, the problems faced by disabled people do not come from the disabilities themselves, but come from the ways in which society fails to uh, accommodate or accept or um, create pathways for them. Um, and since then, there have been a proliferation of disability models where, you know, there have been uh, some, some very right and valid critiques of Oliver in terms of um, sort of the emphasis in a strict social model that all of the problems created by disability come from society, not the individual or the disability itself. Um, uh, and, and also that the, the goal of disability um, rights should be um, independence in, this, in the strict sense. Um, there have been lots of different models that proliferated, you know, the disability justice movement. There have been, um, but since since that time, there's really been this self-conscious understanding that uh, the 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 stigma and prejudice and discrimination faced by disabled people doesn't just come from the disability, but from the negotiation of the the physical reality of people. Uh, with the social structures, structures and relationships in which they're embedded. Um, so one of the interesting things about biblical studies in particular is that it brings together these two strands of, um, of disability studies, that is the interpretive, the historical and literary study. And then since the Bible continues to be normative in so many people's lives today, uh, this ameliorative, ameliorative approach of, of disability studies. And um, the biblical scholar Hector Avalos sort of proposed a, a tripartite um, view of, or, or tripartite taxonomy of uh, approaches to disability texts in biblical studies uh, that I find really helpful when, when sort of looking at biblical scholars writing about disability. And he calls these the redemptionist, the rejectionist, and the historicist approaches to reading biblical disability texts. Um, and so when we find a biblical text that seems um, troubling, what do we do with it? From a redemptionist point of view, what we try to do, or what, what, redemption, what redemptionist scholars try to do, is try to find, um, to redeem the text. That is to find a text that seems troubling and uh, articulate an interpretation of it that is actually liberatory uh, instead of oppressive. Rejectionist approaches to disability texts, on the other hand, say the original meaning and the, the, val the most valid interpretations of this text um, are fundamentally flawed and we should just reject them outright. And then the historicist approach takes a, um, it it really takes the tack of the first strand of disability studies that I described, you know, the literary and the historical, and, and just tries to contextualize this particular text in its historical context without coming to any judgment about uh, whether or how it should be used today. And if you were to situate yourself with a particular inclination towards um, one of those, it seems it's the, the latter category. Is that yes, I definitely... In, I definitely take a historicist approach, but I think um, that I'm also <laughs> constitutionally incapable of sort of anticipating more theological, how 
how historicist biblical work get will get uh, used theologically. Um, so I, I, my interpretations tend to be historicist, um, and in ways that I, sort of at times are are a little bit redemptionist and a little bit rejectionist, um, because. It, it, because I think that's the nature of understanding the text that sometimes we find um, nuggets of, of liberation in there. And, and other times we find, you know, this historical context where we don't want to emulate um, that sort of historical um, uh, view or place of disabled people. Um, so moving on to the question of healing um, I, I'm going to start again with Isaiah 42, 7, um, the servant of the Lord and this mandate to open the eyes of the blind, to set the prisoners free, and to uh, release from prison those who dwell in darkness. I start here because uh, second Isaiah becomes really central in very various strands of messianic expectation in second temple texts um even pre-new testament so for example in in one of the dead sea scrolls texts uh, a little fragment 4q 521 uh, we have this quoted in a context that is clearly talking about some sort of messianic figure um, and we also find this verse quoted in the canonical New Testament Gospels about Jesus, where it's taken out of a metaphorical domain and literalized as a sign of, of sort of Jesus' messianic bona fides, right? That he, he, he is the one who is expected because he is uh, literally giving sight to the blind. <clears throat> So it's this through line where, and I mean, I think it's interesting how you have texts uh, that are in the Hebrew Bible sort of metaphorized and then become literalized uh, as a means of, you know, demonstrating the fulfillment of messianic expectation. Um, and in, in early Christian literature, you really have a proliferation of healing of the blind narratives. To um, so short of, once again, uh, where the blind service props demonstrating divine power, very seldom uh, do you have, you know, the, the meaningful explorations of a person's life after being, after having sight uh, bestowed or restored. And uh, almost never do you have explorations of what it is like to live faithfully while blind, right? So um, here is where we get to the, the problems of associated with the, the healing of blindness um, as, as it connects to the lives of, of real blind people, right? Um, so I, th I think there are a few problems that are, that are worth dealing with in order. And the first one I call the problem of empty hope, which is, um, you know, miraculous healing of the blind is, is sort of just by its sheer, the volume of stories of healings of the blind is, is presented really as this paradigmatic, um, the, the paradigmatic solution to blindness, uh, for want of a, of a better phrase. Um, but if you think about you know, how many, um, it, and it fits into the medical model, right? Where blindness is the problem and healing is the solution. Um, but if, if healing is the solution to blindness and healing is miraculous and you know, Jesus and, and, and other early Christian miracle workers um, were, were the enactors of that, you know, the number of people, if, uh, 
if if that's you know if you're reading these literally and taking this as something that that did and, and could and can happen, then um, the number of people who were healed in these narratives is is very small, right? And um, this is certainly not it was not the 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 what happened to most blind people in antiquity or since, right? So, um, and here is where we get into sort of this this question that the the blind uh, Christian theologian and ethicist John Hole talks about in his memoir, where he he talks about healing as a, even a form of spiritual abuse, right? Where most blind people are not going to be miraculously healed. Um, so if that is set up as an expectation. Um, and as a, a real possibility dependent, um, or, or a real possibility period, then the, the fact that most blind people historically and today are not uh, given their sight um, is often interpreted as a failure, and particularly as, as a, you know, a, a having too little faith, right? Um, so that's, that's problem one of sort of the, the presentation of healing, uh, as a solution to the problem of disability is, is that, you know, for those who accept that as, as an ongoing possibility, real and ongoing possibility, um, it is often an empty hope. Uh, and relatedly is the second problem, which is the tools for everyday life. If we accept that most blind people will not have their sight restored then the preoccupation of biblical texts with healing uh, does not give any tools to people to live uh, with the bodies they have. Um, and each of us has to live with the body that we have. And so by focusing on healing, it actually distracts from the development of um, mm. accommodations and adaptations that can help us to live with the bodies that we have. And it, it can, you know, cause people to reject their real life and simple steps forward by focusing on, you know, something that is um, out of reach, that empty hope of the problem one. Um, the third problem, and this ties more broadly into a whole host of biblical texts, um that that deal with healing and and in this um again we find a lot of these texts showing up in second isaiah um in sort of the, the presentation of a post-exilic utopia uh which gets taken up into the 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 interpretation the christian interpretation in in the construction of christian afterlives um so you'll hear these texts in Second Isaiah talked about as as utopian or eschatological or heavenly, right? Where you have um, the eyes of the blind shall see, and the deaf shall hear, and the lame shall leap like gazelles. Um, within these broader utopian visions, where you have a generalized lack of hunger, a lack of want, a lack of predation of of you know predator animals upon prey animals, all of these sorts of things, and this is particularly troubling for those of us who accept our bodies as they are and are putting in work to um, live with the bodies that we have and in addition are you know doing societal work um, on any number of levels to build social structures that are more liberatory and inclusive and accepting of disabled people uh, because it implies that acceptance or entry into utopia, whether that is an earthly or a heavenly utopia, is predicated on becoming people we are not, right? That uh, entering utopia is predicated on losing our disabilities. And for many of us, our disabilities are inextricable from our identity as a whole from the people mm. that we are. And yeah. so for many disabled people, not only is the topic of healing uh, very touchy because it implies that there's some failure in them for not having been healed yet, 
Um, but th the idea of utopia, of heaven as a place without disability is really troubling because it represents not just an act of erasure, but an act of self-destruction to enter into that on what I call the eugenicist terms that of, on, on which most utopias are constructed. Yeah, and um, that's something that I know I've I've kind of had conversations with um, Brian Brock about this, particularly in the context of intellectual disabilities, um, um, in which so much of the person, the personality and personhood of of um, people is is intertwined with their experience of the world. But I think it's, and I've kind of often had in my mind that there's a a, a demarcated, um, like I kind of have separated between physical and intellectual disabilities in my thinking about that. I think because, um, honestly, I think because in my experience of disability, it's so bound up in pain. And so when you're thinking about, you know, eschatologically, it's, it's you know, the removal of pain in it's, I think that often the shortcut that we're making is, oh, that must mean X being the removal of all kinds of disability. Um, but it's it's an important qualification um, <laughs> to, to, to kind of query that. Yeah. Um, well, and I think that's it, part of that derives from how we think about disability today, with, where our, our modern umbrella category of disability includes a lot of things that have important similarities, but aren't all the same. And those yeah. include, you know, there are there are divides in in really important ways between uh, sensory disabilities, mm. uh, motor disabilities, cognitive and emotional disabilities, and then, you know, chronic pain conditions or, or chronic illness in, in ways that allow them to function as, as a social and political coalition, but also have important differences that shouldn't be papered over, right? And it's it was really the chronic pain and illness communities who, who came with some of the first critiques of the social model of disability saying like, no, being in constant pain is not society putting a burden on me. That is inside my body and, and we, you know, yeah. we would like it gone, right? Whereas for yeah. people with, with motor and, and sensory disabilities, uh, you know, you, you have the, 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 the contention that like, listen, if, if society accommodated us better, this physical condition would not be inherently disabling or as as disabling as it as it is currently. So yeah, it, it's you know when we talk about disability as a social construction, all of those things go into it, and we have to think mm. about the way that we talk about disability today also as a social construction um, that that's under negotiation right now in a very exciting way. But you know, there's a lot of um, aspects and, and things to consider there as well. Yeah. Can I have a follow-up question on, on the first mm -hmm. of those problems um, as a shorthand kind of um, it, blindness is the problem, healing is the solution. Mm -hmm. When we look at um, the kind of the story of Jesus hearing, healing the paralytic um, and his diagnosis of, of that not being the the paralyzed man's physical condition, but his spiritual moral condition in that, you know, he, he goes to the friend, your sins are forgiven. How does that kind of factor into our thinking about um, the way in which healing is described in the New Testament? Maybe Madsen, this is something you can speak to as well. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, this is out of my disciplinary specialty, <laughs> um, but but I think you see there, in some ways, the, the use of disability as a symbol, right, um, and as an, and sort of entanglement with this, the, the moral domain, right, and you you have I think in that story, Jesus doing both at the same time in such a way that the miraculous physical healing sort of uh, gives credence to his claim of removing sin, right? Yeah. Um, 
and where both are presented as um, ways in which the individual is lacking or um, broken that both need to be remediated. That's, that's my right off the cuff take. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. And, you know, I think it's also tied up in the in some purity regulations and some stuff tied to uh, the law. And so, you know, if you think especially with like the woman uh, cured of her flow of blood, I mean, you know, for her, there's this enabling, you know, for her to be ritually pure alongside being, you know, quote unquote, morally pure to whatever extent we can separate those. So it's really interesting. And of course, this all comes back to your models, uh, you know, around how do we deal with scripture? Because um, there's that can still be a rather problematic schema that we're kind of accepting the the law's presentation of that. Uh, going going in a slightly different direction, I, I wonder, Eric, if you could say a little more. You've you've been talking about some of the societal. Um, or the ways that society perpetuates or exacerbates the experiences of those um, with disabilities. And I wonder if you could especially speak to your experience as a scholar and what you have uh, observed as you've been in the academy, as you, especially as your um, disability has come on you know, a bit later in, in your um, academic work, or, or I mean, not to say that you're late in your career, but um, it's obviously come at a point when you're already established. So could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that my experience is unique because of the point at which I uh, became disabled and really became unable to continue doing my work through visual means that are customary uh, in academia, right? And And so in some ways that prevented me from, from encountering some of this context where um, I find that people who are blind at younger ages or in, in different stages in, in their academic journey encounter um, exclusions and inaccessible things and, and uh, able, ableist discrimination variously, right? Um, I, was, I was, after my comprehensive exams, I was working on my dissertation, so, um, I had the ability to slow down, to adapt. Um, I also, you know, I have um, a spouse who is very supportive. Um, and, you know, so, so in some ways I, I escaped some uh, experiences that others have very commonly um, such as difficulty getting accessible materials in time for coursework that is on deadline. Um, you know, I, I had problems with inaccessibility of resources, but I had time to work through those. Um, in, in general, I think what, what the process did for me was it really undid the idea of, uh, of independence in academia. Uh, it made me realize just how interdependent we are on everything and how much support structures have to do with the success of anyone, disabled or not. But it becomes very clear when um, you acquire a disability. You know, I, I think of the support structures on which we all rest as sort of this scaffolding. And then, you know, when you acquire a disability, it's like somebody built all the scaffolding scaffolding about 10 feet to the left of where you need it um <laughs> and, and so yeah. you know for able-bodied people they are able-bodied scholars are you know atop this massive scaffolding of technologies and structures that people have built to help them do research right you know you can go back to to the foundation of writing and of texts and then of libraries and then of you know institutional databases and ad administrators and librarians and all of these people who are contributing to the work of scholars. Um, and then when you acquire a disability, you see that none of this becomes impossible, but so many of the support structures have just been built a little bit differently from what you need or a lot differently from what you need. Um, so, you know, in terms of my own research, I do research not only in Hebrew, um, 
but also in, in Aramaic, in Akkadian, which is the cuneiform of, of ancient Mesopotamia. And uh, for some of this, blind researchers had begun to build the scaffolding that, that I needed, right? Uh, beginning in in the late 19th century and especially in in up through the 1930s um, there were there were blind rabbis and and Jewish educators who were working on Hebrew Braille codes um, and and you know transcribing the Tanakh into Hebrew later on you know there was a Greek Braille code and then in the early 20th century there was this a group of blind um, Biblical scholars, Sarah Blake LaRose, Ray McAllister, uh, Matt Yader, who worked on expanding the Braille codes for, for Hebrew and Greek so that they could handle academic study, so they could handle the Hebrew cantillation and, and like, you know, the, these little uh, critical markings and apparatuses that we have in critical editions of the texts that we need to do with scholarly work as opposed to just, you know, um, uh, reading of the text. Um, but you know, I, I joined the effort, of, you know, right when we were starting to work on the Braille code for Akkadian and for Sumerian and um, for a number of other languages. So in some ways, it's also felt like a little bit like hanging off the front of the train laying track, right? Um, so that you can keep uh, the, the train moving. Um, so it, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a complicated experience. There's, it's It's been um, in some ways, I've, I've been impressed at how willing many people are to accommodate uh, me and how I do things differently. Um, it's required a lot of extra communication in terms of how I do things, how I do things differently, how I won't do things or can't do things. Um, and, and then just a lot of education of myself and others in terms of um, what disability means, what it doesn't mean, and uh, how to move forward um, in, in communities of, of mutual aid and, and care and collaboration. Thank you, Eric. Wow. I mean, mm -hmm. not only was that, you know, just a great insight into what you personally experienced, but I really appreciate the history that you provided there and the work of, of various scholars that you've highlighted in your answer. So thank you. Something that has come up for me as you've been speaking, and I want to pick up on the, um, the kind of deficiency that you raised in a lot of our conceptions of kind of the paradigm of disability as moving from, you know, blindness to healing and that healing is the is the kind of end end state um, in that it, it's failure to equip you to to live with the body that you have and to live faithfully in 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 the kind of all the diversities of various kinds of disabilities um, that we all that we all um, well, a lot of us do have. And I just I thought I would love to hear more from you about um, what that has looked like for you as you've tried to 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 do that. Um, sure, <laughs> and and just uh, so your listeners know, uh, I have a blog that I started back in 2017 to sort of chronicle my way through this path of adapting, um, and it's it, the blog does a lot of other things now too. But there's a lot of posts in there about learning how to use assistive technology, learning how to use mobility devices, um, as well as the, the real psychological shifts necessary to um, keep going to do these things productively, right? Yeah. And, and I, in, so it's, it's, there's been a lot of learning, um, new skills, you know how to use a white cane, how to read Braille, um, and and in some ways it's odd because they're they're skills that I already learned how to do these things another way as a child, and I'm having to relearn them in a different way as an adult. Um, you know, I learned to read print as a child, uh, I learned to navigate visually as a child, and now I'm I'm relearning these things in a different modality, um, and. So that has been interesting. There's also been, you know, just there, there is the big shift in identity, in understanding myself as a disabled person, and in how I think about being a disabled person, how I think about disability. 
you know, most of us are not raised, and I was not raised in in a situation where we were uh, surrounded by <laughs> an elevated disability consciousness of the disability rights or disability justice movements, yeah. right? Yeah, and so we were raised in these um, sort of naive context of of disability essentialism of that medical model where you know there's something wrong with the body you fix it right um and if you can't fix it then that's very sad and it's a tragedy and um people worry about your future um i i love the writer allison kafer who writes about you know that this view that many people have of disability as the loss of a future right and so it it did take some mental effort to really stake my 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 stake in the ground and say no disability is not a tragedy. Tragedy it doesn't have to be a tragedy. It can be. You can turn anything into a tragedy. But um, tragedy to me has to do with the you know really the cutoff potential, right? Um, in a, in a way that is that is understood as abnormal, and so for me acquiring a disability in my thirties, it, it did in a sense sort of if you know if you think of all the life possibilities ahead of you as this branching tree, like it pruned off some of those branches, um, but it does not represent. It, it also opened up other ones, and and there are still many left, and so it does not represent. The total loss of potential, the total loss of a future. Um, so you know, it, there were there were big changes in self concept in understanding that I was going to um, be treated differently, be looked at differently. You know, I think particularly about the the mental shift that that I had to go through to start. Um, carrying my white cane everywhere and using it when I needed it. Um, and, and sort of my inner resistance to that based on how I knew it would change how people looked at me, right? Um, you know, you carry a white cane and suddenly you're not just a man, you're, a, you're I'm a blind man, right? And that's the first thing people notice about me. And um, it also means that it is in, in some sense, um, more effort to be understood in many experience, many interactions. Um, and that that takes work to get used to and to know how to know how to navigate. Um, and and all of these are difficult things that rely on that negotiation between um, the body and the social structures and relationships. And you know, in, in, in some cases, I can tell the, the difference in easiness uh, or, or yeah, you know, it's different based on who I'm talking to and, and their experience with disability and how they think about it and, and um, you know, their emotional resonances with it. So that, yeah, that's sort of a rambly answer, but those are the things that come to mind. Oh, it's so wonderful. Um, to hear you unpack that. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think it, it I think my my disability is also acquired. And I think that it is interesting mm -hmm. hearing you describe that that shift, that mental shift that that takes place in your self-understanding. And mm -hmm. I love that idea of um uh you talking about how tragedy is a cutoff potential. And whereas I think, I mean, this is not always the case, and it's important not to kind of um cast all disabilities in the same light because there is such diversity, but I mean, I think that in, a, in often, in a lot of cases, um, being, <laughs> you know, I think I, I have tendencies towards a fierce independence and my disability has forced me to be more dependent on other people in a way that actually has deepened my relational intimacy with people. And if, if you think of what it is to be at heart, to be, to be human is to be in relationship with other people. And so in some ways, in unexpected ways and probably not ways that I would have chosen, not ways that other people would have chosen, um, it can open up potential in, 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 in profound ways. Um, mm -hmm. And that's <laughs> that I think, um, yeah, I'm really grateful to you for unpacking just such a wealth of wisdom. I, 
I would feel like we want to keep talking forever. Um, maybe we could do another episode, but yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm the same. I have that fiercely independent and stubborn streak. Uh, <laughs> and I wish I could say that I had uh, fully learned how to be productively interdependent. I don't think it's ever really something, not something that you, but I'm, you land I'm, on. I think it's a continual iteration of, I think I I'm learned this five years ago. <laughs> I'm yeah. working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much for joining us, for making the time and sharing your your wisdom, your expertise and your experience. Um, we are all the better for it. So thank you so much for making the time. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 